how you play it. <laughs> <laughs> listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. Our guest today is author Laura Kaziski. Laura is the author of four novels and six collections of poetry. Her poetry and prose have both won critical acclaim. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including the Pushcart Prize. Uh, she's been published in Harper's, The New Republic, The Iro Review, and elsewhere. She teaches in the MFA program and the Residential College at the University of Michigan, and today we'll be discussing her forthcoming novel titled Be Mine. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I was hoping that um, we'd get started just by reading a passage, um, one of the opening passages from your book, um, kind of give our listeners an introduction to uh, the novel itself. Okay. I stepped out of the door this morning to a scarf of blood in the snowy driveway. Like a bad omen or a threat or a gruesome valentine, a tire track and the flattened fur of a small brown rabbit. The floors must have run it over, delivering the roses, running late already by nine o'clock in the morning. When she handed me the long white box at the door, she never mentioned having killed anything in my driveway. Maybe she never noticed. It's our busiest day of the year, she said, breathless, of course. I was running late myself when I saw it. What could I do? The damage had already been done, utterly crushed, completely beyond hope, and cleaning it up seemed pointless. It was already snowing again. Soon, the evidence would be buried. But I also felt such a pang of grief, seeing that bit of brown fur in the blood, that I had to steady myself at the door. Was it one of the baby bunnies I'd startled from their hole in the ground last spring while planting morning glory seeds? I'd screamed when they'd scurried out of the soft dirt and didn't go near that, that edge of the flower bed again all spring, into summer. The mother rabbit abandons them, doesn't she, if she smells a human on them? It would have been impossible to know if this dead one was one of those, but I felt sick with it, guilt. My valentine roses had brought this sad end to something that had been, only moments before, making its way back to its little den under the snow. If I were a better woman, I thought, in less of a hurry, I'd get John's shovel out of the garage and dig a grave, a proper burial, maybe a cross made of popsicle sticks, the kind Chad, when he was seven, made for Trixie's grave. But it was such a bitter cold morning, a harsh wind out of the east, and so cold that the snow, even in that wind, lingered before it fell as if the air were heavier than the flakes. And I'd lost my gloves again, left them in the supermarket cart on Saturday. Out there with my car keys and no gloves, I thought it would have been impossible to dig a grave, anyway, in that frozen ground. Already a couple of crows were sitting on the branches of the oak, waiting for me to leave. Valentine's. From John, the dozen roses, delivered half an hour after he'd left for work, time to surprise me as I walked out the door, and a little card on which the florist had written for him in her girly cursive, to my dear wife, the only valentine I'll ever need. I love you and will always love you, John. And from Chad, the first valentine ever to arrive from him by mail, from college, a strange sad moment at the mailbox as I recognized slowly the handwriting on the red envelope with a postmark from California. Ma, you know I love you. Tell Dad I love him, too. Too weird to send him a valentine, but I miss you both. I'm having a great time here. Love, Chad. 
I couldn't help but think then, predictably, sentimentally, of those crude cut-out construction paper hearts, his crayon scrawl. I still have one of them pinned to the bulletin board above my desk at work, although the pink has begun to yellow and the edges have curled. I yule you, Chad. And the year he licked away half of a heart-shaped lollipop before wrapping it in tissue and giving it to me. This year, even Brenda sent me a card, my nest empty now that Chad's off to college, a way of reminding me about it while pretending to make me feel better, a black-and-white photograph of two little girls in fancy hats and to my sister-in-law with love. Sue brought me some heart-shaped cookies the twins had made, and one of my students, a charming Korean girl, gave me a little box of chocolates, which I left for the secretaries in the English department. And even some secret admirer, or prankster, left me a piece of paper, torn from a legal pad, folded into fourths, stuffed into a campus envelope, and left in my mailbox at school, red pen in an unfamiliar hand. Be mine. Thank you. That was author Laura Kaziski reading from her forthcoming novel titled Be Mine. So that gives you a little introduction to um, the protagonist of the novel. Um, I was hoping you would speak a little bit about your creation of her. Uh, Where did she come from? Well, I'd worked long ago on, um, not that long ago, five years ago maybe, I sort of started a short story in which um, this character, or a character like this, is set in this dilemma, receiving this anonymous valentine. And the short story didn't go anywhere, as often my short stories don't. And uh, then, um, I guess it was, it would have been... Two and a half years ago, uh, around Valentine's Day, I, you know, sort of saw it as a novel. I hadn't really thought about the character and the situation yet, but I began to sort of visualize, you know, a bigger, a bigger stage for uh, such a conflict. And then once I started doing that, the other characters came in, you know, that she would have a son, that she would have a husband, that she would have a friend, and who the secret admirer might be or might not be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really, uh, the, my first draft through, I was just figuring out, you know, what was going to happen to her. And then later I realized, you know, what the twists and turns of it were going to be and then went back. Then that was my second draft, third draft, fourth draft. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I started to deal with that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about how, um, well, for example, you mentioned um, when we were talking before the show, um, your father was a man. Um, You're a college professor. Your protagonist is a college professor. I was wondering how how you deal with um, bringing autobiography into your writing, uh, whether that's something um, you typically do or only certain characters seem to um, revolve around stories from your own life? Well, I'm not really able to write, I don't feel convincingly, about things that at the level of really kind of the senses I'm not familiar with or Mm -hmm. deeply uh, engaged with. So um, everything all of the novels that I've written and any stories that I write, there's always some ele- the, the place, the landscape, the age of the character, uh, the seasons, uh, that these things are, are have to be a part of it for me or, or I can't, I just can't, I don't know. I don't know how people invent uh, worlds on Mars and, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, write of places that they haven't been. I just really, I need to know. And I mean, it's not a coincidence. This has happened to me with every writing project I've started that the idea for, you know, the the plot, the situation, the conflict, and um, the season have always, I've always started it in the season that the 
the novel is, you know, begins to be set in. And this one, um, really, I suppose the first draft of it, as I was writing it, was from February until um, the August that mm-hmm. the novel ends, mm-hmm. my first draft anyway. Um, so at that level, everything is completely autobiographical. But then I have to mess with things because my, <laughs> my life isn't nearly as interesting as Sherry's. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, at the same time that, you know, I, I have to say that, you know, much of what Sherry does with her days, uh, what she eats, where she drives, um, you know, a lot of her life, her her son is much older than my son is now, but I guess, you know, it was, I have a son, so, you know, I have a husband. I, I live in the country and uh, an old farmhouse. Um, and all of these things are, are true of hers, too. But I have to say, I, I uh, set her up with a great many more conflicts than an yeah. average day for me. She is, <laughs> she is quite a conflicted person. Um, I mean, as the, as the title of the novel, uh, Be Mine, suggests, it's very much a novel about, about love and relationships. It's also very much about, about lust. And um, you draw a lot of interesting, um, strange contrast between the two. Um, that are pretty raw, and you've got one quote in there I really particularly liked. It's um, the protagonist is speaking to, I guess you could say he's an acquaintance of her. His name is Bram, and um, he's talking about how his mother used to write vampire novels, mm-hmm. and um, he said that he never read her vampire novels um, because he said, I'm sure it's full of sex. That's another thing you really don't want to read about written by your mother when you're 17. <laughs> yes. And uh, I was thinking about you mm-hmm, writing this novel right. as a mother. How, mm-hmm. I mean, how did you deal with drawing the line um, in writing that? Like, would you want your, would you want your kids to read this? Would no, it, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> I wouldn't want anyone's children to read. It. <laughs> yeah. Um, but well, I do have, you know, so far anyway, my son's only 11. We have a pretty open relationship about this. He, um, you know, he asks about the novels, what's in them, and Mm -hmm. why can't I read them? Why can't I ever read? You know, I've told him he can never read anything mom has ever written. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he says, and he wants to know why. And, um, you know, I I think he's a pretty savvy kid kid and he understands what's in those movies, those R-rated movies that mm-hmm. he can't go to see. Um, but uh, And he also knows why that stuff is, you know, what, what it is that adults, you know, are sort of interested in grappling with, um, you know, uh, aware of that children aren't supposed to be. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, another thing about him is that he has been now all his life around a lot of writers, yeah. a lot of writers who I won't let him read their stories <laughs> or poems. And, I, you know, he can hang out with them before the readings, but he can't come to the readings. <laughs> so he knows what's going on mm-hmm. there. And he knows that, you know, the the literary world and, uh, and the one uh, that, you know, we're living, that there's, a, you know, there's a... a a separation there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have no idea. I mean, I hope, I mean, he's got a sense of humor about it now. I hope he'll continue to have a sense of humor. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so far, you know, my husband has a wonderful sense of humor about <laughs> uh, material in my novels. Um, uh, and uh, m- in my more extended family, I've told them what they can read and what they can't read. And as far as I know, they have um, stayed within the boundaries <laughs> so, that's good but I have but when I'm writing I really I don't, I'm not thinking about mm-hmm. who's going to read this or what would anyone think mm-hmm. um, I might think those things before I publish something yeah uh, and certainly before I give it to someone for Christmas <laughs> yeah. but um but uh, I don't uh, 
you know, I just can't think that way when mm-hmm. I'm writing. It is a really interesting contrast. I mean, dealing with the fact that um, much of your writing is very autobiographical, but at the same point, there are certain things that you probably do not want people to associate right. oh, with absolutely. your life. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. how far how far is too far when it comes to you, uh, when it comes to you in writing about love and sex and relationships? Uh, what do you mean? Uh, like, where where would you draw the line? I'm, some of these, some of the scenes in the book are pretty. I mean, they're pretty raw. They're pretty. They're pretty open. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, was that something that was difficult for you to do, or it just no? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, more. Someone else would say yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, no, I don't think so. I the, to me, it's really important if there's going to be sex in the novel and a you know if you're writing about someone's life and in particular uh you know uh, her sex life in this case i uh, to hold back seems really cheesy to mm-hmm. me um you okay. know I, I try to leave some things to the imagination but uh i you know i myself um find that the less said often the more you know the more sort of well cheap the the use of sex in a novel seems mm-hmm. i mean i i wouldn't exactly say that i'm trying to be graphic but i'm trying to you know give enough of the a sense of a real life that the sex seems implicit and important not gratuitous and you know for for a fact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM and Arbor. We'll be right back. Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and we're here with author Laura Kaziski discussing her forthcoming novel titled Be Mine. Um, the book very much um, struck me as being strangely sinister. Um, there was a lot of there were a lot of different relationships in this book. There were romantic relationships, um, family relationships, like the protagonist's relationship with her parents and her relationship with her children. And it was strange how all of them sort of struck me definitely with a sense of sadness, but particularly with a very sinister sense of not not in such a horror movie kind of way, but what people are capable of doing to each other emotionally, um, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unknowingly. Um, was that a, a theme or a motif that um, you were really striving to carry into the novel? Well, no, but it was something I think that developed in the writing of it. I don't begin with themes or mm-hmm. even, you know, a, a sense of exactly what it is in a conflict that, you know, could be revealed by the at the working out of the conflict. Um, but certainly, as I started to write, uh, I became more aware that uh, the the note that it began with, be mine, that that was something that was 
coming out as I was writing more and more about who do we own, whoever owns us, who uh, who do we ever really know, whoever really knows us, and how quickly some of this stuff could be yanked away by any number of missteps or mishaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, certainly um, I started out with the idea of being sinister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew that this was a bad Valentine book, yeah, <laughs> you know, that you this succeeded. was about, you know, <laughs> that this was a, that this was going to end badly and that this was about crossing certain lines that from which, you know, there would be no return. Um, and I think that, uh, Although I'm not sure that it's really in the novel or that it needs to be, but that one of the things that was of real interest to me in this was writing about the the mother-son relationship Mm -hmm. and um, realizing, I mean, I guess in my life and then in my protagonist's life, how primary that is, Mm -hmm. you know, that these these other... um, you know, her husband, her lover, her friend, she feels that she owns them. They feel that they know and own her, that they belong to one another. But um, in the end, it seemed to me that the the one person who had a claim on the other was the son's claim mm-hmm. on his mother. Well, I was hoping that you would read a, a passage about that, particularly a passage about the protagonist and her son um, from the beginning of the book. Nothing like spring yet, but only one more week until Chad comes home for his spring break. This morning, we woke to more snow, a long, cold carpet of it on the lawn, curtains of it blowing in fat flakes sideways in a hard wind. While John was still sleeping in the bed behind me, I stood at the window for a while and watched it, and I started to cry. Why? The snow? Or maybe the realization that it was only one more week until Chad would be home and how excited I've been now since he went back to California after New Year's for my boy to come back. And because I couldn't help but wonder, is this what it will be like from now on? From now on, will I count off the days of my life in black check marks between Chad's vacations? Season to season, holiday to holiday. I could, I suppose, move through them just as I always have, buying the appropriate cards sending them out at the usual times, putting up the Christmas wreath, taking it down, planting bulbs in the fall, seeds in the spring. But will I do all of it emptily, waiting for Chad? And after a few more years off at college, how often will he even come home? There will be, I suppose, some summer backpacking through Europe, a spring break with his friends in Mexico. Soon he'll start calling in November to tell me, Mom, I'll only be staying a few days this year around Christmas because... Then what? Is this the empty nest? Is this what I was crying about at the window, watching the snow? At Christmas, Brenda went on and on about it. So how is it having Chad off at school? What do you do with yourself? Is it like getting to know yourself and John all over again after 18 years of motherhood? She and her partner eyed me smugly from their superior positions on the love seat, childless lesbians with books and Welsh corgis and endowed chairs at a fancy college as I followed Chad around their their townhouse with my eyes. They'd been waiting for years, I thought, to see me crash and burn when my career of being Chad's mother came to an end. Was this, the snow and the tears at the window, what they had in mind for me? Sue predicted it, too, from her secure position as the harried mother of nine-year-old twins. She kept making sad eyes at me in the hallways when school started in August. But I kept saying, believing it to be true, of course I'm going to miss him. But all I ever wanted was for my child to be healthy and to grow up, to be a happy young man. So how can I begrudge it now that it's happened by being sad? 
Because, Sue said, because it's so sad. Maybe a little, I said. Something like a button or a cotton ball, one of those things you always fear your child will swallow, felt lodged in my throat then, and I wanted to sob it up. But instead, I smiled. Thank you. That was Laura Kaziski reading from her novel, Be Mine. That passage really struck me as a particularly poignant, um, kind of a sad passage. And I don't know if it's maybe because I'm uh, more on the other end of that um, Mm -hmm. duality of parent and child relationship. But um, I thought it was really telling, hearing hearing it from the point of view um, of a mother. Uh, One of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading that passage was how... um, the protagonist in your book and how we as people in general really get attached to um, people as ideas. Like she has a very, she has a very um, resolute image, I guess you could say of how she, how she thinks her son is, or Mm -hmm. I guess how he was maybe. And that's not necessarily carrying through uh, as he's, as he's getting older. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that. Well, I think that um, much of what the novel is also about is uh, the delusion of Mm -hmm. what we think of as a normal life, as, you know, the sort of facade of the people we know that we've grown comfortable with um, so that we don't have to scratch the surface, see uh, them for who they might also be. Um, and that as Sherry sort of learns these things about herself, it's stripping away layers of um, her delusions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not psychotic delusions, but just the or- the ordinary delusions that help us live in polite society. And I think, uh, you know, everyone, all of the characters had, have had that. They all think they know uh, who this, the other person they're dealing with is, and, and, and it's not entirely the case. Um, certainly, Chad doesn't know what his mother's capable of. Uh, Sherry thinks she knows what her husband's capable of. He thinks he knows does not knows what she is not capable mm-hmm. of. Um, and uh, uh, so they're all sort of suffering from not truly understanding mm-hmm. one another. Yeah, I think that probably what made it feel so sinister was the realization that not only is the protagonist sort of building uh, characters and relationships out of her imagination, like how she views her family and her friends to be, but more than anything, she was fabricating how she viewed herself. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was yes. particularly yeah. difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And at it, the same time that she learns these things about herself, she's surprised to learn that, well, she's not the only one who is capable of things she mm-hmm. didn't didn't think were possible. Exactly. So uh, you said that your son was 11. Yes. And um, I'm wondering where the um, college college relationship came from. Is that from you dealing with your students? Uh, well, I don't know about that so much or just uh, I thought, well, I think it, you know, again, as I said, that was sort of my writing process is that I have a character, a situation, a landscape, a season, and I figure it out from there. And as, uh, you know, I was getting to know Sherry better, I realized this this situation couldn't happen when someone had a child at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> a definitely little child not. at home. That it seemed to me much more like the kind of thing that someone who had, you know, recently not suffered the loss of a child, but who had, you know, a a significant relationship had been, 
you know, severed or changed or, you know, mm-hmm. had, had occurred to her. So she was looking to fill, you know, the proverbial void. Mm-hmm. Um, so she had to have an older son. Um, but, you know, no, I mean, I, I, I can't say that it's uh, that it's necessarily from you know college students mm-hmm. I, it's not you don't I don't have the, that kind of you know relationship I'm with the college students mm-hmm. not apart from that yeah <laughs> so mm-hmm. I thought it was um interesting as well um how the protagonist came to view her son leaving almost as a sort of liberation in a sense and I guess it sort of backfired in the end but I thought that that was um an interesting way to view that relationship. At first, you've got the scene where she's sitting, looking out at the snow, and, you know, she starts crying for no particular reason. But as the novel continues, you know, she's embarking on all these new, all these new things. Like, she is becoming a completely different person than the woman she was when she was, you know, the mother of Mm -hmm, her child. And uh, I thought that was a really, a really great way to develop the character. And um, I guess it sort of in a sense, brought her out of the sense of despair and loss that mm-hmm. pervaded the novel. I guess I, th- you know, I guess part of my idea was that that was sort of out of a desperation. She's mm-hmm. looking for a new identity mm-hmm. that she's been so solidified in her role as Chad's mother that she, and that unfortunately she doesn't exactly find that liberation mm-hmm. yeah that she's perhaps been too deluded all along to mm-hmm. be able to find that what she finds is something else is that she finds some she realizes some things about herself mm-hmm. how did she keep the novel from becoming too uh targeted in one direction you've got i was really impressed with the breadth of uh the characters the subject matter like i said you're dealing with romantic relationships you're dealing with uh family relationships how did you keep it beco- from becoming too pinpointed as a more of a romance novel or more of a family novel? Like, how did you keep the scope so broad? Well, I, I think that that. Thank you for saying that, and I think that if that is the case with the novel, it's um, again it has to do with the writing process. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really uh, working on something constantly, not too fast, but at a steady pace. Mm-hmm. Um, that for myself at least um one of the challenges with writing a novel is not getting bored with it Mm -hmm. and if i focus solely on one character and you know one conflict i get bored yeah um and as i wrote more i became more interested in some of the you know side stories uh Mm -hmm. sue's story and her husband's and you know, Chad and his uh, romance and that sort of thing, and, and Garrett, the friend. And I just became, I don't know, they just caught my interest, and then I'd go with that for a while. And then, you know, so I think it, it's really, you know, it's just the process of writing a novel. Yeah. I was particularly interested when you said that you started the novel in February and you continued it. So was it sort of like a real time creation it was, process? Yeah. That's, uh-huh. yeah. that's fabulous. Well, that's been the case with. Uh, to well, maybe not all of the novels, but at least a couple of them. Yeah, that seems like a wonderful way to keep yourself on on target as your characters move yeah. through their life. You move through yours. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, we're going to take uh, one more short break. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. We'll be right back. i 
Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and we're here talking with author Laura Kaziski. Now, unlike a lot of the guests we've had on the show, uh, I think you're unique in that you've been particularly well published in both fiction and poetry. Normally, our guests are very pinpointed in one direction. Um, I was hoping that we could this segment talk a little bit about your poetry and I was hoping you would start by reading one of uh, your poems from a book called Gardening in the Dark Yes Speeding Ticket The officer asks if I know why it is I've been pulled over Oh no, I say not that armed robbery back in 88 It is a joke only a woman with two children in the car a woman of a certain age could make There's a small, pleasant birthmark shaped like an island I've been to on his face. I show him the proper papers. Yes, I've been to that place, and I know about narrow escapes. So many sputtering coals tossed into the mossy shadows among the forget-me-nots, the violets, the wild oregano. In a hurry, ma'am, today? Hell no. We could have been early or late. Who cared? They never unlock that gate. What difference would it make? What I was after was just a graceful passage to another place, and now I know there's no such thing. A flock of swans risen from the lake. No swans, no way. The self, contrary to popular opinion, is not the thing that remains. We are infinite, and it isn't a question, is it, of whether or not we could be replaced. Who among the millions of us would be worth the trouble it would take? Truly, I wanted only to appear to obtain such grace. And then, through the years, somehow I became a high brick wall, fully expecting the little blue flowers to thrive in my shade. Once, I let a crescent wrench rust for years in snow and rain. I knew exactly where I'd dropped it, could have taken you to the high grass into which I'd let it slip, but there it stayed, until I saw the paperboy pick it up and put it in his pocket one day. Strange, only the other morning, my son said he wanted to be a policeman or a demon when he grew up. To get bad people, he said. And I said yes, and I poured more coffee into my cup. And I remembered the signs, that the signs were posted all over that place. Thin ice, no skating. We skated anyway. The yellow tape, the psychology majors, the structuralists, the policy makers, and how, when the time finally came to stand before them and try to explain, I had nothing at all to say. Only to find myself suddenly unable any longer not to say it, Finally, having you, here like this, all ears and leaning into my window with an island on your face. True enough, I was not yet naked. Comprehensive collision, the neighborhood was safe. I had an address in it, and a name, only to find you, this patient beside my motor vehicle in your final disguise, all merciless kindness, laughing a little with a boy's turquoise eyes. A voice says, hurry, I'm burning. A voice says, where are you hurt? All those years, I thought, if only there were a fine, I could pay it, wholly, and this slow torture would be over. A voice says, this isn't the end, you know, no monologue can save you. A voice says, yes, officer, I know why it is I've been pulled over. While you write it down, as I always knew you would, this gentle reckoning, all my life, I was driving toward it as fast as I could. 
Thank you. That was uh, Laura Kaziski reading a poem, Speeding Ticket, from her book, Gardening in the Dark. I really like that poem very Thank much. Um, and I thought uh, as I was reading that book, it had a lot of it had a lot of um, the same theme that your book, Be Mine, carried. I mean, you've got this woman uh, sitting in the car. Uh, the quote from the poem is, it's a joke only a woman with two children in the car, only a woman of a certain age could make. And um, I mean, the life of it, of a mother, of an aging woman is something that is prominent in your writing. I mean, tell me about how you feel like your experience as, you know, a woman who's had a family, you know, she's, she's aging, she's got a set career. How does that impact your writing? Well, I think, I mean, I, as of, I've been writing, you know, whatever it is that's a part of my life at the moment is mm-hmm. a part of what it is I'm writing about, particularly in poetry, because when I write poems, it really is, you know, the poem comes to me rather than, you know, me deciding I'm going to write a poem about a woman who gets a speeding ticket. Mm-hmm. I got a speeding ticket, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote the poem soon afterward. You know, mm-hmm. I was thinking about m- monologues and, and also about how penance and uh, and guilt and paying fines and, you mm-hmm. know, sort of forgiveness and that sort of thing. So I, I really, I you know, I write whatever's in front of me at the moment. Those, you know, it's, it's not a very conscious decision to, you know, work with particular themes. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, I, you know, I guess I, I, in the novel, in Be Mine, I really wanted to, because I hadn't done that yet, write about, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, the life and the sexuality of a woman in her 40s. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I hadn't, well, I hadn't been in my 40s yet to do that. So, you know, I uh, that's when it became of interest to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I, I particularly felt like, uh, you know, th- that this was a topic for me because I'd, you know, I'd written about teenagers. I had just finished writing a young adult novel, actually. Um, and, I, you know, I'd been over that ground and I hadn't been over this yet. And it does seem to me that, you know, well, maybe one of the, one of the, uh, you know, maybe the booby prize for, <laughs> you know, getting older will be to have this other material, mm-hmm. which I hadn't had it before. So I might as well embrace it as a gift rather than, you know, keep going back to, you know, I, I did, I think, yeah, two novels, three novels in a row, um, not entirely, but really had as a major focus, uh, teenagers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was an important time in my life. But I, I, I'm hoping that I will have more to write about is definitely (laughs) I'm really curious about um I guess just the idea of experience in general I felt like the protagonist in Be Mine was I mean she was very experienced in a lot of ways she had teaching experience parenting experience sexual experience I mean in terms of writing do you think that life experience is something that must be acquired in order to um have your writing be uh successful be meaningful um to others, or is it something that could possibly be alienating to a younger generation? I think that experience is unavoidable, mm-hmm. and it's not something that a novelist or a poet should go out looking for any more than anybody else does. Hmm. I mean, things will 
things just happen and you you know as Rilke said in letters to a young poet I something along the lines of if you're if you feel you have nothing to write about don't blame your life you know Mm -hmm. blame yourself (laughs) you know that and I think it's really true that that any life given uh you know a certain looked at in a particular way is going to be of interest is going to provide material for a writer Mm -hmm. and the most exciting life won't for someone without you know that interest or that sensibility um so no i don't think that but i do so no i don't think that experience i've I, I don't think that writers need to go out in search of experience that whatever, you know, it's impossible to avoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be there whether yeah. you're looking for it or not. And then um, uh, well, the second part of your question was, um, oh, alienating to people yeah, who aren't of your age. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that I think there is something to that. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I suppose that, you know, people in their 40s will who have been teenagers would be just as interested in reading about teenagers as uh, teenagers mm-hmm. would be. And that perhaps, you know, this book would not necessarily appeal to younger people But in that way. But I do think that, um, you know, in any novel you're going to have uh, that, you know, focuses on a broad uh, swath of someone's life, there will be other characters. And, of course, the... Chad character he's, mm-hmm. his uh, you know I had two younger guys in there and I really hadn't written very much I, I mean I think that in this novel more than any other I've been writing about young males hmm. more than I ever had so yeah that's really interesting it's so interesting what you said about experience because stereotypically um going out into the world and uh, gaining life experience and travel experience is something that um I guess people who want to be writers are encouraged to do, but I think it's really interesting that you, uh, that you advise, you know, a younger generation of writers to just find the experience in their, in their own lives, find the interesting aspects of their own lives. Well, there are different kinds of writers too. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, uh, because my writing is always so sort of centered in a domestic situation and uh you, you know and and because what i really love to write um, more much more so than uh sex or plots or murders <laughs> although there's all of that in all of my novels um is i i like i like to write about the world i just like to write about the the sensual world i mm-hmm. like to write about what you know the air smells like mm-hmm. on uh, you know a rainy a day in december um I like because I like that that's where I get a lot of my material. And so, you know, I have traveled some and had more exciting experiences than I write about. But that doesn't come into my writing mm-hmm. very much. You know, I, you know, I suppose I, I don't know. I, I don't think and I don't I'm not sure that it would have. But there are other writers, I'm sure, who would, you know, who would you know use experience uh or whatever travel as Mm -hmm. you said uh more productively maybe than i have because i'm just not you know Mm -hmm. i definitely did catch on to the uh the very simple like naturalistic descriptions that you had in be mine and i thought that some of those were um some of the more particularly beautiful passages in the book especially um at one point the protagonist uh hits a deer in the road and she sort of she passes it every day basically on her way to and from work and she just sort of watches nature take hold of this 
dead deer. I thought that was a really, really interesting uh, development in the novel. And it sort of contrasted all these human relationships she had going on as one that was very much more oriented around uh, her natural space and her environment. Um, But I wanted to talk to you about your fiction and your poetry. You've got, is it six collections of poetry now? Yes. Okay. And this is, Be Mine is your fourth novel? Right. And I have one young adult novel. Okay, great. Do you feel like you've, I mean, because the novels are generally longer than the books of poetry. Do you feel like you've written more fiction on the whole or more poetry? I feel like I've written more poetry. Really? Yeah. Um, I mean, which do you feel more comfortable with? Poetry. <laughs> well, why? Uh, I don't, because that's what I started okay. writing. That's what I... I didn't know that. That's my first love, I guess. Okay. Um, which one... I mean, do you feel like... Because fiction has, uh, I guess, such an image of being more accessible to readers in general, and you're very, I mean, you're very talented at writing fiction, um, dialogue, et cetera. Like all those are very, very accessible, especially in Be Mine, I felt to your readers. Do you feel like making your poetry accessible to readers is something that you are striving for? Or is it something that um, concerns itself more with you and how you relate to it? Uh, uh, No, I don't just write poetry for myself. Mm -hmm. But accessibility isn't something that I spend much time thinking about either. Um, For me, What is really interesting uh, about poetry uh, are the implications that can be made by sort of half-finished ideas or Mm -hmm. associations. And um, I I suppose that there are readers who would say, well, you know, that makes it obscure. But to me, that there's a real difference between being mysterious and being obscure. Mm -hmm. And I really... um, you know, the thing that I love about writing a poem and sort of just shirking off narrative and mm-hmm. shirking off uh, uh, some of the conventions, um, which way, if you think about them too hard, they're really sort of tacky of fiction. <laughs> you know? What if you shrug those off um, mm-hmm. and uh, are able to communicate in words sort of things that can't really be communicated by words. Um, That's what I'm interested in doing in poetry. So it's not that I'm not thinking about whether something would be accessible, but Mm -hmm. it is a completely different kind of communication. I'm trying to imply things Mm -hmm. uh, much more than I'm trying to say them. And I'm trying to figure things out and sort of show uh, the passage of, of, you know, the mind over these ideas. Mm -hmm. How effectively do you think that poetry can tackle narrative in general? Well, there are some wonderful narrative poets and poems. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know. I'd, I'd have to think about that a lot longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I can't do it very well. I mean, I like, I like a, a poem to have um, a broken anecdote or two in it mm-hmm. or, you know, a bit of history. Um you know, maybe a wee bit of dialogue or a fraction of a character, but sustaining uh, a story in a poem isn't something that I feel capable of doing. But I've, you know, read poems that have done it. Have done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's really it's interesting what you say about um, poetry being able to be left incomplete and having that having that be okay. And I guess I'm curious how you feel about. Um, I mean, we were talking about how the conventions of fiction can seem somewhat tacky, uh, you know, an all-encompassing narrative with, 
you know, a neat little ending. Which one do you think is more, I mean, true, true to life? Do you think poetry or fiction can more accurately capture, um, you know, our feelings, our emotions and our narratives? Well, I think we need them both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, neither one can do it, you know, completely. And it's not impossible to do it in either one either. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to really answer that question. Huh. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. But um, that's about all the time that we have today. Uh, thank you so much, Laura, for joining us on the thank show. It's been great. Me. Yeah, it's been great having you. I really enjoyed reading your book as well. Um, thanks to our engineer today, John Natariani. 